to see how it would play. And so um, he, was, he was very proudly talking about his atheism and, um, and, uh, and the fact that it was predicated based on science. So I, I dropped this on him in my little Facebook post. Uh, and so this is the meme I read last week. The belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing and then nothing magically exploded, exploded for no reason, creating everything and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs, makes perfect sense. And so his response was that you shouldn't, you shouldn't caricaturize my you know, my, my, you know, what atheism is. Well, and then I ask him, well, well, what's the caricature? I mean, just show me how this is not right. I mean, show me the, the error in this reasoning. And he didn't respond. So, um, you know, so I think this is a very helpful, you know, uh, I think it's a very helpful synopsis of what atheism believes, particularly when it comes to how they understand how the universe was created, so or came into being, or whatever happened. So, uh, so here we are now. Just very quickly, so far we've talked about why do unbelievers choose to reject Christ. <clears throat> so in First Corinthians two fourteen, I'll just read this and then I'll move on. But just as a reminder, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly; they are foolish to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we talked about that a few weeks ago. And then last week we talked about this particular text from 2 Corinthians 4.4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, which is a terrifying, just, just a terrifying thought. How many billions of people on the planet risk eternal separation from God because the gospel is veiled. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, un of unbelievers. They have been blinded by the God of this world, that is Satan, to keep them from singing, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see him. Can't, they can't see him um, because they have been blinded. The veil has blinded them. So when we have conversations with people, you can know that playing in the background. So if you're ever evangelizing or sharing your faith or whatever it is you're doing, and, and it's just not, the light's just not coming on in that person's mind, playing in the background of your mind is they are blind. The God of this world is blinding them even as I speak. And so as I pray, I pray that the Lord will, would pierce through that veil, that blindness, and help them to see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, that they need to see that and that they cannot. And there's a, a very real sense in which compassion ought to be a part of our heart for those people who are blinded in that, in that way. So... Now today, we're going to spend some time on Romans 8, 6-8. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles or, or your phones and you want to turn to that. And this is a text that in some respects kind of parallels the uh, first text that we studied in this portion of the series 
Um, <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 2.14, there are some parallels here to 1 Corinthians 2.14, although this kind of unpacks it a bit more. So the Apostle Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Uh, that word flesh is sarx, and it means carnal or temporal, co corruptible, weak, seeking pleasure, um, a desire for fallen and or sinful things, thinking like the fallen world thinks about things. So if we set our mind on the flesh in that kind of a way, things that are carnal, corrupt, temporal or temporary, weak, then it is death. But to set the mind on the spirit, pneuma, is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. That is to say, there's enmity or hatred to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, just going back up to verse 6 again, for the mind that is set on the flesh. So, if, if our mind, so, and that's really part of our matur maturity in Christ, isn't it? Is learning how not to think like we used to think. To learning how to, to think in a different sort of way that we set aside uh, how we were conditioned to believe before or how we were even blinded before that what was most important to us at the time before Christ was, was, were those things that were corruptible, that were sinful, that were unreliable, that were weak. And learning how to set those things aside and become a different person, that's the project of the Christian in the life of, of Christ. But the world sets its mind on the flesh entirely. A person apart from Christ trusts only in the flesh, what he sees or hears, what he understands apart from Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a person in your life <clears throat> where as you're explaining God or Jesus or even the Bible, that their mind just doesn't grasp it. And it doesn't grasp it because they're inhibited. And they're inhibited because if they were to try and grasp the things of Christ, it would mean that there were certain things that they have to give up, certain things they would have to surrender. And they just won't do that. That's not the equation that they want. They want what they want. Um, and so, uh, so when the Apostle Paul goes on to say, for the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. They just can't see that. So, and then he drills down on this even more. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. <clears throat> so when we refuse what God wants us to do, when we refuse the overtures of the Holy Spirit in our life, when we reject the conviction that God brings to our heart to turn away from our sin and to turn to Him, that is an act of hostility, enmity, hatred, 
That's what that word means. So that's where much of the world is. And in my conversations with people that I have, um, it's, it's stunning to me the derisiveness that some people will have towards the things of God. Um, because they are so invested in the things of the flesh. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And so basically the mind that is set on the flesh is saying to God, I'm not interested. I don't want what you want. I don't care what you require. I don't want it. I want what I want. I'm not going to obey your law. You're not going to be Lord over my life. And so to this like a philosophy study group that I belong to, that is so much of how people come across whenever the subject of God comes up. It is derisive. There is hatred. There is a resolution that they will never surrender. Now, maybe they just don't understand. And maybe God hasn't yet sort of pierced the veil that's, that's blinding them to the things of God. But at that point and in that stage of their life, if we do not surrender to God and to his law, we are hostile to God. And I don't know if they get that. And I don't know if, uh, if it's even important to them. Maybe, maybe you know, uh, maybe they haven't heard that there are consequences for not surrendering to the law of God and to the person of Christ. So, um, so for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, then indeed... It, the mind, cannot. Indeed, the mind cannot. The mind that is invested in the flesh cannot. So when Jesus was talking about how you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve the world, you cannot... You cannot value the things of the world, the fleshly things of the world on the one hand, and value the things of God on the other. It is impossible to reconcile those two things. So maybe when we're done with the series and you leave here and you have uh, a, a conversation with somebody and, or conversations with a person or people over time, <clears throat> this will be the crux of the issue. They prefer their mind to be set on the flesh. They prefer it. And because they prefer it, they cannot grasp the things of God. Indeed, they cannot. Because the things of this world blind. They blind us. They are the veil that Satan uses to blind us to the things of God. So then Paul concludes his part where he says, those who are in the flesh cannot.
please God. Those who are in the flesh. Now, <clears throat> that is true of non-believers in terms of just in the, in, in the big picture of things, it's just absolutely true. For the believer, you know, I don't know why I do the, I do the things I do, but I know that it's the sin within me, uh, Romans 7, verses 7, verses 14 through 28, that iconic passage where the Apostle Paul talks about why he's not, why he, he's not sure why he sins as a believer, but he understands that when he does sin, it's this, it's this part of him that, has, that, that hasn't been reconciled to Christ yet. There's, there are things in his flesh that he still values and still holds on to, and that is true for every believer. There's ever, it's true of everyone in this room. There are things that we all have here that are of the world, of the flesh, that we still hang on to. And even though we have a relationship with God, when we prefer those things over the law of God, over the person of God, they are acts of hostility. You ever think about that? So when the Holy Spirit says, you, bet, you better not say that, or when the Holy Spirit says, you, should, you shouldn't do that, and we still do, it is an act of hostility. It is an act of defiance. So, by way of example, if you are a parent and or a grandparent, and you've said to your child or grandchild, don't say that, or you better not do that, and they do and or say those things despite what you just said, do you interpret that as an act of love? Or do you interpret that as an act of rebellion, right? And they are hostile to what it is that you want them to do. They're rejecting it out, outright. Well, in that sense, it's really no different than what we do as children of God. So, look, the world doesn't understand a lot about the Christian faith. I remember years ago when I was getting ready to go to seminary, I had to take this psychological test. It was a Minnesota personality psychological something or other test. It was really extensive. <clears throat> Are you familiar with it, Sherry? I see you nodding your head. You had to take it in nursing school as well? I, it's a long title. I can't remember it, but... Uh, uh, academics are prone to doing those kinds of things, making really long titles that nobody understands. But in any case, um, I had to take this, this test. And so <clears throat> it was extensive. And when I got it back, um, it, it didn't say that, you know, that I was psychologically deficient or anything, but it did say this. It said that based on how I answered the questions, <laughs> that I was faking goodness. That's what I said. I said I was faking goodness. So I answered the questions according to my Christian worldview and my values. That's how I answered the questions. And, the, and by answering those questions like that, because that's who I was, it set me outside the norm of what most people do. And so when they, when, they, when they tallied up the scores, they concluded that I wasn't normal and that I was, I was faking goodness. 
See, the, see, the world didn't understand how God calls us to live different lives, to have different values. And so I'm, I would assume that there would be any number of people in here that if you took the same test, you might be faking goodness as well because of how serious you take your faith and how you live your life and the values that you have. There are people in the world who have no understanding about why you would take your Sunday morning where you could sleep in, you could be going to the park, you could be going to a ball game or something like that, you could be doing something, get this, something more valuable, something more fulfilling. Why, why, why in the world <clears throat> would you want to spend your Sunday mornings doing something like this? To come to church, to get dressed up or semi-dressed up or whatever it is you do, but to not sleep in, to block out this time for this particular thing, <clears throat> only to come and hear a shaman stand in front of you, right? And, uh, and speak on something that is mythological, never been proven. Maybe to ask you for some money. They just don't get it. I mean, that's not the reality, but for, them, for, for many of them, that's their perception. Many of them don't understand, for example, like, you know that there's a fairly sizable movement to try and to, to um, have churches no longer be tax-exempt. <clears throat> because there's better ways to spend that money to some people other than giving it to a church or to a charity, or not just a church, but things like World Vision or Compassion or <clears throat> sex trafficking uh, 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 ministries that did to help people like there's just you know the the government will do a better job with that money so let's t let's just tax that and use it in a in a better way they don't understand it they can't see the value of it their minds cannot see because they are in the flesh and so the apostle paul here in reality he presents a hopelessness it is hopeless for the person whose mind is set on the fleshly things of the world. It is hopeless for them. He says they cannot. Indeed, they cannot see it. So when you pray for people who don't know Christ and who seem to be resisting Christ, this may be a way that you may want to pray. Lord, open up their mind. Pierce through the darkness. Help them to see the things of God. So I want to focus a little bit then on the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So in essence, eternal life and eternal death are a binary construct. There's either one or the other. Rebellious flesh against or versus a surrendering heart. So um, <clears throat> those are the two types of people. Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis where he says, 
in the end, uh, when, um, when we all die, we all get what we say we wanted. God gives to the person, he says, he just says, look, God says to, the, to every person who stands before him in judgment, God says to every person, thy will be done. If you loved me and you wanted to be with me in eternity, thy will be done. But if you love the things of the flesh and of the world, thy will be done. It was your will that put you in those circumstances. So the mindset on the flesh is not only about the pursuit of pleasure, but also having faith as a materialist. You, you really not only pursue... Look, so the, the person whose mind is set on the flesh inherently is all about pursuing pleasure because without God, pleasure or the pursuit of pleasure is the only rational thing that makes sense. <clears throat> and, but, by, but by extension, that person is also inherently a materialist. They believe only in the material things. They trust only in the material world. So in my forays into the Facebook Philosophical Studies group, I want to sort of unpack this a little bit because I went to bed last night thinking about a certain way in which I wanted to use this, this text, and I woke up this morning thinking something different. And so what I woke up this morning is what you're going to get uh, because I, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to share this with you. And so um, I, I promise I'll, I'll try not to do this to you every time, but I, I think you'll find this to be interesting. So, historically, apologetics, which is the series, always fell under the broad um, umbrella of philosophy. I don't know if you know that or not, but it did. So, for almost 2,000 years, when you talked about apologetics, the defense of the faith, it always fell under this broad umbrella of what we know to be philosophy. Now, and for this reason, philos means love, Sophie or Sophia means wisdom. So there was this understanding for most of humanity, for almost since the dawn of humanity, that religions belonged to uh, a wisdom tradition. That if you wanted to understand wisdom, you would study a religion or religions, because there were things about the thinkers of those, those faiths or that faith that there was wisdom for life that helped you to live a good or better life. It was always understood that way. Always. And so that's why philosophers would devote themselves not only to the study of philosophy, but they were eager to know what other faith traditions had to say about life. So historically, the Christian faith and other religions have always been regarded as belonging to a wisdom tradition. So when I approach apologetics as part of a, you know, as, as a kind of philosophy, that's exactly what it is, because philosophy is the love of wisdom. Right? And so there are other things associated with that, but um, I'm giving you a, a thumbnail sketch. Philosophy always included studies regarding the nature and purpose of the physical world and the metaphysical world. Always. Philosophers and theologians 
philosophers and theologians were always concerned about the physical world and about the metaphysical world. So what is the purpose and plan of the physical world that we live in and how do we use it to pursue the good life and a fulfilling life? And the metaphysical world, what lies beyond this world? Is there something out there that I will have to answer to? When I die, does my life simply cease to exist? Are there gods or a God who's going to be in judgment over me for how I live my life? All philosophy was concerned about that stuff. As were almost all religious faiths. So, <clears throat> by going on this particular site, um, I took those presuppositions with me that the people on there were, would always want to talk about the purpose and plan of what the, why the physical world exists and how we use it to the best possible ability and then what lies beyond this physical world into the metaphysical world. <coughs> and I was shocked by some things that I discovered because I am, I, am I am not a classically trained philosopher I have a lot of credits in philosophy. I feel like I could have been a, tra a classically trained philosopher. But when I got on there and saw that what I'm reading is really not classical philosophy at all. There was no concern about wisdom. There's no concern about virtue. There's no, really not a lot of concern about the, the pursuit of the good life. It's just not there. It's other things. And, and, and how and the way and the manner in which they talk about the religious faith is very interesting. So let me just tell you this, just by way of setting it up. Participants and group administrators in this philosophy study group are hostile to people of faith. They are hostile. Now, these are people, many of whom have PhDs in philosophy. I'm assuming who would have had to have been trained you know, over, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, global religion as well as Greek philosophy and on up, I, I would assume that they would be aware of all that. I had one philosopher who referred to Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Well, it would be Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. But I had one philosopher who referred to those three great philosophers as babies. Babies. I mean, it was just stunning that somebody would have the audacity to refer to what most of the world considers to be the most seminal philosophers in the history of philosophy in that regard. Note this, that in the high Middle Ages, the university utilized grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and in addition, arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy as the foundation for classical liberal arts education. It was in this environment that theology was named the queen of the sciences. So when you went to a university back in the Middle Ages, theology was considered to be the queen of the sciences. There was this blending of theology and philosophy in many respects. So when I go on that site and I read what some of these people post, it reminded me of this particular meme. Modern man is in a terrible predicament. He is helplessly enamored with the beauty of what the old world built 
yet despises the beliefs that inspired them to be built. Now, who here doesn't feel that way if you understand some of the old world? And that is exactly what happens on this site that I go to in so many cases, not all. So given the fact that I saw this adversarial nature towards the, uh, the Christian faith, I posted this. If discussion about religion does not fall under the broad umbrella of philosophy, then neither should socio-political ideology, that is Marxism. All ostensibly involve a particular tradition of wisdom. All can be informative as well as toxic. What possible rubric could be used to delineate clear boundaries between philosophy, religion, and socio-political ideology? And I got a bunch of responses based on this. And there were three primary attacks that I was, I was able to see. First of all, on this website, this Facebook uh, discussion group, you cannot mention Jesus or cite scripture. But you can mention Muhammad. To mention Jesus or scripture is considered to be proselytizing. So one person responded by saying this. He said, religion is ideological, while philosophy is meta-ideological. In other words, religion is all about a belief system. Philosophy is not, he says, a belief system. I don't know how these people can write this stuff. I really don't know. I mean, it just amazes me. Philosophy is not a belief system. It's not an ideology. It's not, it's not, it doesn't do that. And he went on to say, Unless religion is being discussed meta-ideologically, it is not philosophical. But he's saying that since religion is only ideological, it would be impossible to discuss theology or religion metaphysically, so therefore it should not be discussed. It does not belong into philosophy groups. Now, this is in violation of almost 2,000 years of the academy, of higher education. It's really stunning that people take this position. So I asked the same person, this is what I asked him after he posted that, so philosophers never proselytize? You know what proselytize means? It means to convert in an inappropriate way, to uh, cavort, uh, or not cavort, to, uh, um, to be coercive, pushy, can mean all those kinds of things as well. So I said, so philosophers don't proselytize? Really? All the time. Look, if socio-political, if there's a thing called socio-political philosophy, are you going to tell me that socio-political socio philosophers don't proselytize? Are you going to tell me that Marxists don't proselytize? Really? You're going to say that? So there's this really smart guy who I believe to be a Christian. He's a lot smarter than me. He goes by Semper Veritas. Semper means always. Veritas means truth. Always truth. That's his name. He says, your question makes me wonder about questioning the group rule against citing scripture, 
but not against citing other texts from other philosophers. So if other philosophers can pull from other philosophers as part of their wisdom tradition, why cannot Christians pull from their sources like scripture as part of our wisdom tradition? Why are we prevented from doing that? Why this adversarial approach to us? And I replied to him by saying, yes, they cite philosophers because they believe the quote to be compelling, even definitive. We quote scripture for the same reason then when we quote scripture for the same reason, then it is regarded as proselytizing. So the administrators, the people who control that study group, will either take your comment off or kick you off for days or weeks because you quoted scripture or because you said Jesus. So the second thing that they do is that religious discussion is not considered to be a respectable academic exercise certainly not in keeping with the discipline of philosophy. So, people who are Christian who go on there and talk about God are routinely ridiculed. And there are three reasons for that. Religion is not considered to be rational. Modern day philosophers believe religion is not considered to be rational. You, because you believe, you are irrational. They also believe that religion believes in a metaphysical reality. Most philosophers are material evidentialists. In other words, they're, they're all, it's all based on science. It's only the material world. Most philosophers today no longer believe in the metaphysical reality. The idea that there's a spirit. The idea that there might be a heaven. That there is a God. They don't believe any of that. They don't believe there's any kind of judgment for anybody who, not all of them, but most of them, don't believe there's any kind of judgment for somebody after this life. No kind of accountability. Finally, wisdom, virtue, and pursuing the good life is no longer the primary purpose for the discipline of philosophy. Used to be, but that's not what it is today. So a person in the flesh will argue there is no God because there is no material evidence for God. So my new friend Semper Veritas on Facebook said this, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because you don't have evidence that a particular thing exists doesn't mean that that thing did not exist. So, how many people are exonerated from murder charges because there is a lack of evidence? Does that mean that the evidence isn't there? No, it just means they haven't found the evidence. Does this make sense to you? Feel free to ask some questions. And they may not want to look. Yeah, so the point that Semper is making here is that, look, you're saying that there is no God because there is no evidence, and he's saying just because there's no evidence doesn't mean that there isn't no God. Just because there's an absence of evidence that you want to see or that you could see that maybe you can't see doesn't mean that it's evidence that there is no God. So, real quick, 
Was there ever a thing that existed in the past that does not exist now that we can never know it existed? Was there ever a thing, I, I honestly think this is publishable, was there ever a thing that existed in the past but does not exist now that we can never know that it existed? Have we discovered all of the possible kinds of dinosaurs that existed? We've not discovered them. Do you think it's possible that we will discover every kind of dinosaur that existed? Does that mean those dinosaurs never existed that have not been discovered? No. Does this make sense to you? Okay. So when you say that something doesn't exist because there is no evidence, just because there's an absence of evidence doesn't mean that it's evidence of an absence. Right? So if I have an instrument that can only measure the nature and quality of air, why then would I assume that, that the same instrument can be used to discover the existence and nature of what water is? So if, if, if science is the only way to discover what is really real, but science cannot measure a metaphysical reality, why would I use science then to try and measure a metaphysical reality? Why would I do that? By the way, I've used these arguments to great effect where I'm at. So I'm giving you a little, a little peek at some of the discussion. That, and these are things that you can use in conversations that you have with people who want to say that, it's just material, it's all about science, all those kinds of things, right? Science studies what is material or physical. Science cannot study the metaphysical. It is the wrong instrument. So for those people who want to believe that it's only the material world that matters, only the material world that counts, remember for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The mind that is fixed on the things of the flesh, on what is material, on what is corruptible, on what is temporary, cannot delve into the things that I just talked to you about in the terms of the metaphysical world. Indeed, they cannot because they do not have the Holy Spirit living in them to illuminate their hearts, to help them see those kinds of things. They cannot. And yet, when we have these discussions, it helps other people who are wavering, other people who just need some kind of a, a hand up in some kind of a way in, the, in regard to that. So I went through this kind of fast. Think about it. If you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. Um, and I'm sorry if we delve too, I'm not sorry, but I, I just want you to understand why I went into this because um, this is exactly the kind of thing that comes out of the mind that is fixed upon the flesh. And this is how it works its way out into the real world. And this is how it impacts or invades or compromises things like higher education where people are being trained and educated to think. So they walk away with what much of what I read on that particular philosophical study website, what I read there, all of that is pervasive throughout the university system. 
and it's impacting people that you know now and people that you know will go to school eventually. It is their project to make what they think and what they say a part of the world, the belief system of the students that are sent there. So I hope you understand that, and I, I think it's important to understand that. We have a big project ahead. We have a, we have a job ahead of us about how we, pre we present Christ in the world. This is just one small thing. What really matters is how our hearts are in tune with Christ. What really matters is how authentic our faith is. What really matters is how much we are in love with Christ and so that Christ per is pervasive in and through us. Because sometimes what really needs to be conveyed is what the, is the essence of our heart in Christ as opposed to the essence of what we know in our mind. People are more convinced by what they see than what they hear. So my question to you is, what do they see? I hope they see Christ, and I hope they see Christ in me.